Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, folks. I would like to introduce myself. My name is Pyle, and I am a traveler who also loves to meet people. And I think a blend of both is where this concept of melting pot has come about. In my melting pot series, I will be talking to lots of inspiring people from different parts of the world and also from different cultures, whom I meet during all my travels. The common factor between these folks will be the desire to follow their passion and make it a way of life. So step into this melting pot and enjoy the chats. Hi listeners, Melting Pot is back with another exciting episode. Today I'm in conversation with Ashwini Devare and this conversation is happening in Singapore, in person. Ashwini is a journalist and she's an author of Lost at 15 and fa- not and found but Lost at 15 found at 50 which is an autobiographical book and um, she's also authored a book of short stories called Bartik Rain. Now reading about Ashwini's life on her website has absolutely fascinated me. So um, thank you so much, Ashwini, for joining me today. And um, I can't wait for my listeners and me to hear your journey. Thank you, Payal. It's a a great privilege to uh, join you on this wonderful podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) So it's not going to be a Q&A. Good. It's just very, very spontaneous. So tell me and my listeners about your journey. From what I read up about you, your um, your father was uh, a diplomat and which meant that, you know, you did travel um, and you were kind of uh, stationed at different parts of the world. So is that how, you know, you perceive yourself? as someone who's a nomad? Yes, actually, uh, I would call myself a nomad because my journey has been extremely nomadic from the time I was born. As you mentioned, my father was in the Indian Foreign Service. And this was back in the 70s and 80s, where times were different. Um, You know, I followed my parents from country to country every two to three years. So we went from Moscow, where I was born, to Washington, to the other side of the Cold War, because back then it was the height of the Cold War. Um, From Washington, we were flung into Sikkim, which at the time was not part of India. It was a foreign posting. And the swings were wide and disruptive, because you were going from literally a country where water, pure air was a given, to countries where, you know, you, you couldn't even find 
your basic needs and it was hard for us as children to experience those you know those swings and um but you know it was fascinating because i learned to be a student of history the world became my classroom from a very uh, early age i learned to appreciate the mosaic of cultures to understand the nuances of different countries what makes south korean students nationalistic for instance or what makes russian so literary or so artistic for instance and these were all things that i learned from osmosis just by accompanying my parents from country to country and um it was it was an amazing experience just meandering through you know so many different continents um about six countries i, I even forget the number myself but i think by the time <laughs> i was 15 i lived in six countries and we went to schools in these countries that were those were not international schools so unlike third culture kids we went to local schools because back then international schools were not there in most countries it's not a norm really it yeah. wasn't and they were exorbitant and you know we were on a back then india was uh, indian diplomats didn't make much money at all so <laughs> times were hard and we went to um, local schools where nobody spoke english there were places where for instance in switzerland i was the uh, only color person of color in my entire school actually and i have a chapter in my book called B- brown girl in the ring because that's when bonnie m had just come out with this <laughs> famous song and i felt it was written just for me um and i was just 10 11 so these were formative years and i think when you're a teenager the last thing you want to do is to be uh, conspicuous or to stand out you know mm. these are vulnerable years where you're going through so many psychological and emotional changes and that against the backdrop of being in a foreign country being in a place where nobody spoke english being in a place where you were acutely aware of the color of your skin so these were things that were happening simultaneously with just regular adolescence right regular transition from childhood to adolescence so um there was a lot going on and my book is sort of a personal journey against the backdrop of all these political changes that were taking place in all these countries that we were in so every country that you went to you said you went to a local school so did you pick up the language absolutely i had to because for instance when my dad got posted to geneva There was a Swiss school in the neighborhood and my father said very matter of factly but of course she has to go to the Swiss school and we'd come straight from Delhi and my mother said but what will be the medium of instruction there and you know my father said i'm sure it's going to be french because <laughs> that's the language here uh, he didn't think much of it at all but my you know I, my mother was worried about me and when we went to school the first day the, the principal said we do all subjects in french we don't have english here at all so and did you know any french i had never heard this language in my life before i mean i'd come straight from india i had no clue and how old were you at the I time i was 11 so we did, i ended up doing math and science and history and all these subjects in french and i remember for the first 4 months i just sat in the classroom not understanding a word of what was happening around me and i think at that point my father said maybe she does need a tutor something to get her through this <laughs> and the tutor was a lifesaver she was an octogenarian madame donici as you remember and she took me under her wings and she decided that i'm going to teach this poor child from india <laughs> how to speak french and in 6 months time she had me speaking with such fluency that i could you know do every subject 
in French and I became so fluent that even today I remember the French that I learned when I was 13. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. formative years, I think it always makes a difference. Yeah. So how many, when you, you were born in Moscow, you said, yes. and then how long did you live there before? So or do you have my recollections? My of Moscow are through accounts of my parents. Okay. Uh, I was very young um, and we were there for about two years. Then we moved. Uh, so my, actually the vivid images that I have of all these places begin somewhere around the age of five or six mm. and uh, Sikkim actually at the time was a is a flashback that comes to me in in um, in very uh, I guess beautiful imagery because there were the Himalayas there was a river Tista a house was on top of a hill I remember walking climbing hundred steps to go to our school which was on top of a another mountain um I was sort of like a wild child because mm. uh, that's how it was back in Gangtok in those days. Mm. But that's, I think, you know, an experience to, to live life, you know, where you're able to experience so many different cultures, languages, ways of living. It's far, far more educative as compared to books absolutely and that's that's quite in- incredible yeah so you you mentioned that you were in south korea as well so the journey that began in moscow went uh, to the us to switzerland sometimes i get lost i, I forget my <laughs> own chronology <laughs> but switzerland and then from there we went to a burma which was back in the 80s under authoritarian regime and it was a whole different experience um, and then from Myanmar, Burma, Myanmar now, we went to, um, I went to India for the first time in all my uh, life, I think, I spent five years at a stretch in India. And my tit- the chapter in my book is titled, Feels Like Home, because, and the title Lost at 15 and Found at 50, the Lost at 15 bit is about going back to India and feeling lost, mm. because I'd been outside for so many years that I felt like a foreigner when I came back to live with my grandmom in Pune. And this is because there was no proper school for me in Burma, so my parents decided I should be sent back home. And it was very confusing. I felt like a, you know, all my life I felt like a chameleon. You know, I would blend into my habitat. But for the first time in India, it began to feel as if this uh, habitat was mine. You know, the Mm. flora and fauna felt familiar. There was a feeling of comfort that began to set in. So I think it was the it was a very emotional sort of uh, period in my life where mm. I felt connected and I felt finally like this might for be the first my, time. for the first time. Mm. And it also helped to live with your uh, grandmother, you know, as she, she took me under her wings and it was a very nurturing experience. Of course, having said that, the school and um, had never having studied in, a, in an Indian curriculum was, was, uh, was a punishing one. And I think that was a nightmare, mm-hmm. um, never having learned Hindi. And suddenly I was doing CBSE in Hindi. So it was challenging in many ways. And from, from India, then my, I went to South Korea, which was a, a country that was taking off in the 80s. And it was in some ways parallel to, to me because I was 18, 19. I had dreams of um, sort of taking off and um, doing things, uh, maybe perhaps studying abroad. So everything was coming together. South Korea was a fascinating country to have lived three years at the time. Hmm. You mentioned before we started uh, the chat that you actually did your undergrad from Seoul. So that, yeah, and I mean, I'd like the listeners to to hear what exactly, how that came about. You know, when people ask me, where did you go for undergrad? I usually keep quiet. (laughs) 
people will say, oh, you know, this school in India or that college in the U.S. And I just usually don't say anything because it's it just opens up a whole Pandora <laughs> box. What were you doing in Seoul and what was the college that you were going to? So when I landed in Seoul, I told my parents, I love this place and I want to study here. And my father said, but there are no universities here. There's nothing, there's no English college where you can study. What are you going to do? Are you going to, ready to learn Korean? So it just so happened that there was a University of Maryland that had its small campus on an American military base. At the time, there were 40,000 U.S. troops stationed in South Korea under their defense agreement. And on, the, on, these, on this military barrack uh, compound, they had the University of Maryland operating <laughs> out of there. <laughs> and that's where I ended up wow, going and experience. studying. It was a yeah. fantastic experience. It was very unique because all so my were classmates the, were soldiers. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> so you were completely the non-military yes, sort. Yeah. I was a civilian amongst a civilian. all of them. Yeah, and yeah. It was an eye-opener. Uh, because on one hand, you had life on the military base, which was very American, mm-hmm. with their McDonald's and their um, Burger King and their commissary and the roads. It looked like you were in many, in a small American suburb. Mm. And the minute you drove out of the gates, you were in an Asian country. It was Seoul and there were student demonstrations happening against uh, U.S. presence as well as um, against the government. So it was... In the heart of the pro, we were in the heart of the pro-democracy mm-hmm. movement, and so right, right. So there was a, it was a tumultuous time to be in wow. South Korea. Wow! And, and from our windows, we could see thousands of students gathering in the streets. We could smell the tear gas, feel the burning, and right before our eyes, South Korea went from dictatorship to democracy. Wow! So it was a pivotal moment, moment in history. In history. Yeah. Yeah, we were wow. witnessing. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, would you say that that those um, four mm-hmm. or five years that you spent mm-hmm. were probably out of all your experiences the most, other than India, the most sort of close to your heart? Yes, I would say yes, absolutely. Um, each country ha- is very special, and each experience was unique. But in this case, it literally was being a spectator to history. So in mm-hmm. that sense, it was something I will not be able to forget. It was uh, very inspirational as well to see young students, you know, taking life in their own hands and trying to change the system, which they eventually did. Yeah, so, and um, which I think is now is becoming. Uh, the norm, right? right. Um, yeah, yeah, which is quite yeah. fascinating. Okay, let's talk about your books now. So I know that, you know, I mean, you have worked as a journalist, mm-hmm. um, a correspondent. I think you were a correspondent with BBC uh, in Singapore. Yeah. Okay. So how was that experience? And then what sort of inspired you to start on this other kind of journey of becoming an author. You're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me, Pio, on this very unique and special podcast series, Melting Pot. So I think my early life lent itself to international relations and it sort of cultivated in me this love for 
world affairs and news and it was so intertwined in my life yeah so it was it was very much um I knew that I would eventually either do international relations or journalism, one of the two, and I did. After Seoul, I went to the U.S. to study broadcast journalism, and um, I ended up, that became my career for the next 15 years. I worked in a small television station in Maryland uh, for five years, where I covered pretty much the crime beat. I was covering crime, (laughs) (laughs) because this was the early 90s, and it was a very... um, tough time hmm. during the U- at, at, in, the, in the U.S., um, height of recession, high crime rates, and jobs were far and few in between for foreigners. So I took the job I could get, and it was a small station in the middle of, in a very crime-plagued pocket of the United States, and I was covering a homicide a week for wow. five years, pretty wow. much. <laughs> wow. So that was actually, that honed my skills and um, uh, prepared me for any kind of news coverage, really. Um, from then on, I, I joined, um, I started working with CNBC in Mumbai, then I went to, eventually I worked with the BBC in Singapore, and I think I had the uh, the classic conventional clash of uh, parenting, domesticity, pitted against a high-octane job of um, news reporting. And I think it was another, once again, another natural um, path to, to, to start writing, because as a journalist, I was writing, and... Uh, to start writing fiction, non-fiction, seemed like a natu- another progression of the same path. Mm. So um, the first book I wrote was short stories. And it sort of happened, uh, I, I guess, you know, as a journalist, you sort of store data in your head for years and years. And I just dipped into that reservoir of uh, ideas that I had in my head. It was sort of like a cloudburst, and that just happened. And then all the stories came <laughs> pouring out. <laughs> So Bhatik Rain, actually, I found, even though it was fiction, found it easier to write, personally. I was a bit daunted by the idea of writing a memoir. I, I knew I, all, I always knew that I would. It's just that the timing wasn't right. And five years after Bhatik Rain, I was ready to, to write a memoir. I think I needed that distance because it's, the material is personal. And mm. I wanted to have that distance of reflection, responsibility that, that you need when you write a memoir. Also, I wanted to write it more like a fiction. I didn't want to write it as an autobiography. Mm. It was more that the treatment I wanted to give it was more about like a fiction book. So I, that's, you know, it, that's what made it more interesting even for me to write it. Um, so all, yeah. you know, I haven't read the book as yet, but I'm going to. Mm-hmm. All, you know, the events uh, that you probably have mentioned in the book, is it all memory or were you, you know, during the course of your life writing a diary or, I mean, how was it all coming back? Well, Payal, I'm, an, I'm a big hoarder of notebooks. And when I see a blank notebook, <laughs> I just can't resist it. I just start writing. And ever since I was a kid, in all these countries that we lived in, I wrote diaries I had copious notes of everything because I think when you're in these countries anyway you're so there's so much isolation yeah and I took refuge in writing Uh, my sister and I would you know create scrapbooks and magazines and kept ourselves entertained through writing and my sister still remembers today all those magazines I used to create and and uh, you were diaries. able to take your diaries? Many of them survived. Really? Wow. Several of them survived, wow. I have to say. Um, many, Of course, many didn't. There, yeah. are, there are big gaps. 
those gaps were filled by Talking my parents to, yeah. and my sister. And because we, once again, we were such a peripatetic family, we became very close. Mm. We were extremely close because we really didn't have anyone else. And the dining table would become our, you know, our meeting point every evening at dinner. My father would tell us what was going on in the countries we were in and we would ask him questions and we would vent our frustrations. And So the closeness, uh, I think, played a big role in uh, bringing this book together, actually, because uh, my parents were able to recollect so much of the early years. Mm. Um, and my sister is my memory bank, really. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That that you need that, right? <laughs> you absolutely need that. Yes. Wow, mm-hmm. that's interesting. What's next? Good question. <laughs> it's a very good question. I think uh, if I don't write, I feel lost, and I think writing will continue to be a big part of my life going forward. Um, I'm struggling between whether I want to embark on another fiction or non-fiction book because I I love history. And I love um, non-fiction very much. So mm-hmm. I think it's a tussle right now. <laughs> okay, so you're still, yeah. you're at that stage. I'm at that stage. Yeah. But I, I definitely want to write a novel. Hmm. Uh, and that is, the sooner I do it, the better. <laughs> <laughs> so I wish you, COVID could have helped me, uh, the, you know, churn out a novel, but yeah, no, not but, quite. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think you need a very different headspace, you know, and, um, but with yeah, i'm sure you there will be something which will just connect with you and then you know and then yeah. you'll start flowing so yeah a lot of people ask oh um do you need to go away and sit by a beach or you know sit in, in the middle of a garden or a cafe so i really am a believer that writing is like a job hmm. you you cannot wait for inspiration to strike at least it doesn't work for me the longer you sit at your desk um, for and the, and the better you will write because in, I don't like distractions. I don't like noise, and if I'm staring and at a pretty picture, I get distracted by that. You know, mm-hmm. so for me, it doesn't work, and I really don't believe uh, in waiting for inspiration to strike because writing is hard work. Yeah. And as one author, I always like to quote her said, Jody Picoult says, you know, you can edit a bad page, but you can't edit a blank page. Correct. The more you write, the better you get. And a large part of writing is rewriting, um, deleting, and it's tedious, it's laborious. And I, so I think it's really rote. It's like any other, it's just sitting down at your desk and just writing, Mm -hmm. which is not easy, um, especially, you know, when when there's a lot of other things in your life that yeah, are going on. Yeah, yeah, So then I guess you have to prioritize. And maybe just, I guess, say to you, I'm not an author, so uh, I, I guess I have no, you know, I have no business to <laughs> to even be talking about it. But sometimes but I, it's hard to justify saying, I just wrote a paragraph today. You yeah, know, it's... Yeah, but I think but it's what comes from within, right? That's what ends up happening, for mm, instance. Mm, um, mm. Yeah, but when it flows, then it really does flow. <laughs> I think you have That's to. Good. A large part of it is also being organized in your research and your thoughts. Um, people work differently. Some, hmm. some. I have a cork board with maps and notes and things like that, but um, and a lot of notebooks and uh, things like that. Other people are very meticulous. Everything goes in the computer. I like a lot of handwritten stuff on the side. Uh, that's so because I guess differently. You, yeah, that's true. And you've had the habit of diaries from a very young age. Yes. So I guess that's why it still stays with you. Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So promotion of 
your books. I think from what I understand talking to um, a few authors is that to write is one thing, but to get your book out there is a whole new ball game. That's true. So, I, I I agree with that. Yeah. Um, so was it hard for you to I mean, does the publisher help or do you have to do a lot of legwork on your own? So I had not anticipated how difficult it would be uh, and how much easier actually in the end it turned out the writing part was easier for me than the promoting. Because most of the times nowadays publishers leave it up to the author to do the the promotional work. Uh, because they they are busy they have so many authors and it's really yeah. up to you and i think my training as a journalist came in handy in that sense that i was used to emailing and you know chasing people for interviews and so i um, i tried my best to to promote the book on my own the publishers helped as well but i think a large part of it comes from your own um determination to push the book out there and it's i think um much easier today because of social media yeah and um self publishing and there's so many platforms on which you can publish your book or to, to promote your book so yeah yeah um yeah. so i did a lot of uh, literary festivals with the book in many parts of asia and i think those are wonderful opportunities to talk about your book to meet interesting people meet other authors so i think th- that's been a that's been one of the main areas where i have um, promoted the book but it is it is a it's continuous work in progress because mm. you know it's you've written the book and you yeah. might as well you know make sure make that people read yeah, it. yeah yeah sometimes you write for yourself too i mean it's it's a depends on really sometimes it's just your passion and you're happy with a few people reading it some people really want it to be out there it depends on your um, on what really matters to you and what and, yeah and, and, the and drive. a good book w- uh, journeys by itself it really travels on its own hmm. it's word of mouth it's your network yeah. and yeah yeah interesting yeah. wow wow <laughs> yeah it's been really fun talking to you ashwini thank you thank you so much and um, you know and i probably the next time i i talk to you um, we'll be talking about your next book <laughs> i hope so pahel i would be that would be really um, that would be wonderful i hope i can push this through uh, and you know i think once you write a book it's very easy to sort of coast along and say oh i just wrote a book and I'll take a break and then before you know it it's 2 years and 3 years. And, yeah. Yeah. Um I've had a break of about 3 to 4 years in between the two books. I think this time I'd like to do it faster. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Ashwini's a journalist and now an author and she has had such an exciting life that I'm not surprised how it eventually led to her documenting her eventful journey into a memoir. Living in so many different countries while growing up can be quite challenging, and I can say that because of all my personal experiences. But what Ashwini must have experienced being a part of all these diverse cultures in terms of education is truly priceless and something that books can never really offer and i'm sure you agree with that i'm really excited to read lost at 15 found at 50 which ashwini has so kindly gifted to me and she's also autographed it with a very very special note thank you so much for that ashwini do pick up both ashwini's books bartik rain and also lost at 15 found at 50 in case you haven't already read them 
Until the next exciting episode of Melting Pot, this is Payal signing off. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 